Hello and welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, welcome. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of white racial identity at our current juncture. Now, to help me unpack the smorgasbord of perspectives on this, I'm joined by a lineup of very esteemed guests, all of whom have something significant to bring to this discussion. Today, I'm joined by a woman whose contribution to the conversation on whiteness and gender has become no less than a global flashpoint. In 2018, her article for The Guardian, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Colour, went viral, sparking controversy and many heated debates. She's since followed that up with her first book, White Tears, Brown Scars, in which she traces the role that white womanhood and feminism have played in the development of Western power structures. In so doing, she adds her voice to a chorus of women of colour who increasingly denounce the narrow vision of feminism posited by the figures who've come to define the movement. Her critique of white feminism has been dubbed an extraordinary book for anyone who wishes to pay more than lip service to truly inclusive intersectional feminism. And the Washington Post described it as a stunning and thorough look at white womanhood that should be required reading for anyone. In addition to all this, she's a writer and academic with a background in journalism and is currently completing her PhD in media studies at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Please welcome Ruby Hamad. Hi, Ruby. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure and honour. Oh, thank you. Well, um, you're joining us today from Sydney, Australia, and um, I know that just uh, two days ago on the 26th of January, uh, you recently had what some people call Australian Day, other people call Invasion Day. What, what's been going on with that? I know that you've had huge protests out there. Yeah, so Australia Day is, uh, well, is January 26th being the date that the first fleet, uh, the British first fleet um, sailed in to uh, Sydney Harbour and began the, you know, the dispossession, um, uh, ongoing dispossession and, and colonisation of First Nations um, on this continent. So uh, the fact that uh, it's uh, considered a, a day of celebration by a white Australia, it has been uh, contested for a long time. Um, you know, the concept of even celebrating uh, a day of, of invasion and these protests have been getting uh, louder and bigger every year, led by Indigenous activists. So, and it's been, it's been actually really... Um, you know, I don't want to be great, but 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 it, it has been. It's been great to see that it is getting the 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 protest is 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 getting louder, and and every year more and more non-indigenous uh, people, white people, and people of color are are really uh, joining in in that uh, rejection of uh, uh, claiming that it, it can be a day to celebrate um, everyone here when when it's literally is. You know, celebrating the, the the beginning of a an ongoing uh, dispossession and, and genocide. Yeah, and and I mean, do you do you see a future in which 
Australia as a whole might be able to redefine itself in a way that that day might not be marked at all or might be marked differently? Uh, look, you know, I, I hope so. Um, I, uh, you know, in terms of a vision for a post-Australia day, uh, Australia, I, I want to I want to leave that to, you know, Indigenous voices, Indigenous uh, activists and writers. Uh, what I will say is that it hasn't always been celebrated on this day, the, uh, the concept of an Australia Day, that the date has has moved around quite a few times. Uh, so it's not as if having it on this particular day has always been, you know, central. It's just become one of those it's almost it's like this sticking point where it, it, it's um, I think some uh, proponents of keeping the date, you know, on that date, a particular date, and of, of celebrating, you know, uh, Australia Day. Uh, it's almost like they're afraid if they give, then they're going to have to be asked to examine some more, which of course they will be because that's the point. But yeah. so, you know, so so point being is that some people are really digging their heels in on it. But and when I say some people, I don't just mean, you know, ordinary citizens. We're talking about politicians as, as well and media commentators. But um, the, you know, the momentum is undeniable. It's getting louder every year. And so, uh, you know, and I'm even seeing, you know, even mainstream papers and mainstream, you know, you know, radio sort of DJs, you know, saying something like January 26th as opposed to Australia Day. So, so there's this subtle little sort of, um, you know, as well as the big protest, there's this subtle, yeah. uh, I'm just noticing this subtle sort of changing of language in, in a way where it's becoming... Um, you know, it's just it's just not so much of a given anymore. Yeah, that mm. Australia Day, yay! So does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? And I think that's that's the amazing thing. If you mm. get to live long enough, you realise that change often occurs in those really small increments that might seem very subtle, but when you accumulate them over time, represent shifts. Um, but maybe when we're in the midst of them, they, it, never, it never feels like it's it's enough or fast enough or, or what we need. But um, that's uh, that certainly sounds like the conversation has become mainstream, which I think is is so oh, yes. so vital and, and and long overdue. In fact, many people might say. Um, so to, to bring us back a little bit, um, if you don't mind, I'd love mm -hmm. to go back to the original article that you wrote for The Guardian mm -hmm. in 2018, how white women use strategic tears to silence women of colour. Now, of course, anyone listening is advised to go and read that piece online. Um, but I'd love to hear how that piece came about. Um, where where did it come from? And, and for those who haven't had a chance uh, to read it, I mean, what was it? What was it that you really wanted to get across with the piece? Um, so that piece was a like it, it was a it was a culmination of of a, of a process of me uh, attempting to unpack and contextualize uh, things that had been happening to me and that and that happened in quite quick succession at a certain point in my life, which was about, you know, just before the article, you know, be, probably be in the year beginning 
uh, leading up to the article, uh, which is what I describe in that in the article, which is uh, when uh, often when there's a a conflict or an interaction um, with between a white woman and a and a non-white woman, and the white woman is. is feeling challenged, so disagreed with, or indeed maybe the brown or black woman is confronting her and asking for some kind of, you know, explanation for her behaviour, that, um, you know, what the woman of colour experiences happening to her is that all of a sudden the the table is turned and uh, the uh, a white woman can lean into her racial privilege and or her racial status, I should say, and say, uh, accuse the woman of colour of actually being mean to her or attacking her. Um, and so that's something that has been described, you know, before uh, happening in, in the workplaces. What I was noticing um, with myself is, yes, I I didn't have an incident uh, involving work, but I was noticing it with friends and I was even noticing it, you know, in online interactions with people I considered friends and and as much as someone who you only know through the online world can be a a friend, right? So um, where where we could have, you know, years of... uh, discussions and banter and agreement and maybe minor disagreement on certain things but then you can have uh, I would have a disagreement and um, there's this uh, almost like this vicious turnaround I, I, it's hard when I, I, I'm on this abstract so I'll give you a concrete example I discussed in the book you yeah, know sure. having a, a discussion uh, with an with an online friend about um the, you know the, the the Syrian conflict and Trump strikes against you know you know after the the chemical one of the chemical attacks and and when when Trump um, responded with strikes in on Syria and mm-hmm. I had me I have family in Syria so I, I was you know we were terrified that it was going to escalate even more and she supported the strikes and mm. I was I, I just I just remember saying I'm like I'm really kind of upset about this because uh, it's you know this is something that affects my family uh, and not yours and can you kind of consider how being very vocal on social media and saying that this is a good thing is you know uh, might make me feel and the response was so vicious where I was just accused of bullying her. Uh, I was accused of making Syria about me, which is weird because I am Syrian. <laughs> so, and mm. and it was just like this this kind of cavalcade, of, of, not only of abuse hurled at me, but at the same time saying that I was I was abusing her because she's all she wants to do is care about Syrians and Syrian children and. Uh, my head was just kind of spinning, and I'm just like, well, what's like at what point? Like, where did I say something abusive just because I, I objected to having strikes, you know, more strikes against my family's country, um, and you know, and then what happened is there was a lot of silence from you know pe- people, but then a couple of dudes came in and started 
you know, telling me off and being like, why are you being so mean to her? And Rara, I'm just like, oh, my God, I haven't said anything. I'm just like saying I don't, uh, I'm really, I'm disappointed or whatever. You know, I'm hurt by your uh, support of an escalation in uh, in the conflict. Um, And then all of a sudden I was abusing this poor woman who's about to be a mother or is a mother, uh, uh, you know, so... All of a sudden, I, I we weren't even talking about the war or the strikes anymore. We were talking about uh, whether I was or, or how badly I was abusing her, right? So mm. uh, I, my head was spinning, right? And I was like, all I did was disagree about something that actually does affect me and doesn't yeah. affect her. So I found it weird, right? So mm. that was one example. And so there were other little things. And I remember having a, a, a just as a, just said to a friend of mine, it's like, it's like, man, like, what's going on with the white women? Why, like, why can't they handle it when a brown woman disagrees with them? It's like, can't we just disagree? Can't we just say, you know what, I don't think you're right on that? Why does it then just suddenly become, you know, a blockable offence or an unfriending offence just to 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 not agree on 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 an important, you know, world topic? Yeah. Um, why do you so think? That's, well, that's what I was trying to unpack, and yeah. uh, so. I think, you know, it, it has to do a lot with, you know, the concepts of, of white fragility and, um, uh, you know, what, what one of your previous guests, Professor Kehendry Andrews, who, who I'm a big fan of, is um, a delusion, that right? So there's this delusion of um, whiteness as being good and moral and so to be disagreed with... Um, by a brown woman is can because that can affect you know the the self image of being good and of not being racist and uh, is uh, too I guess it's just it's too much to to handle so mm. the response rather than actually having an an honest conversation about it or an honest fight even or an honest disagreement it becomes about maintaining or or recalibrating that image. And the way to do it is to basically demolish the brown woman. And it's actually in the process of talking to you right now. And in that, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's just kind of clicked. Like she would have, you know, flipped precisely because I'm Syrian. So, so mm. to be disagreed with by a Syrian is right. Does that make sense? Gonna, of course. It's actually, in a way, it's worse than being if I'd been white or anything else because I'm I am close to it. So that's the potential for her to look bad is yeah. increased. So that then means that necessarily my punishment also has to be increased, and I had to be completely. Um, uh, demolished, you know, my, uh, uh, you know, I'm talking about in that, in that interaction where yeah. I was, you know, a bully and a, and a Islamophobic or all sorts of things. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I come from a Muslim background and, yeah. and I, I've been called Islamophobic because I, I was scared that the strikes were actually going to make things worse, not better. So it's, it was all very, very bizarre for me. Um, you know, especially because I've never, never fought with her over over that issue before because I didn't really fight with her over anything but yeah so um yeah so that that is kind of one of the big sort of things that happen and and then because I noticed that same sort of uh outcome like the way you know whether it was with a friend or whether it was a work it was would always be 
um, somehow the end result would be that I'm doing something wrong or I'm being mean and can't I see how difficult things are for her and uh, now is not the time uh, or and right so it, it's like I just remember scratching my head going like really can it can I possibly be the wrong party in every single one of these because so this is like four different incidents with four sort of four different contexts happen yeah. quite close to each other um so that's what I was just like mm. sure like I know I know you know I'm not, I'm not gonna you know, I'm not saying that that I'm never wrong but the point is that when, when something happens like that and it was all with white women and it all had quite a similar trajectory and accusation yeah. of me being horrible you know, even with a boy, you know, a former editor, right? So someone who's in a much bigger position of power, and I was yeah. a, freelance, a freelance columnist, um, to be accused of um, making being being awful and and um, you know wanting everything my way or whatever. She said it was was I just found that very weird because it's like, well, I'm I have no power here. I'm a freelance columnist. You're you're an editor on six figures and mm. you job security even if I am in the wrong mm. surely um you can handle this in a way that isn't victimizing yourself and accusing me of being an awful person to you right yeah. so so you're um, seeing these patterns in in your life and obviously like you learn you look back and you think yeah this has happened before but I think obviously I was in obviously really attuned to it because it happened in quick succession and then because the work one, and I don't want to get into it because it is work and media, so I don't want to give any sort of identifying details, but sure. because it was work and we're talking about feminine, my colleagues being feminists, that is when it, that's when I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, like something's going on here because these are feminists, right? These are my colleagues. These are my peers. Um, we're meant to be working together, uh, fighting the good fight together, right? So... How is it that all of a sudden they've just um, completely just, you know, formed this sort of like this, this uh, almost like this sort of circle and, and, and pushed me out because I objected to, to something that was happening to me um, mm. uh, at work. And so I, that was really hard, right? Because I was just like, I can't believe it. I thought, I thought these were like, I thought they got it. I thought they got me. I thought that they got it. They got race, mm. that they were trying, you know, that they weren't the quote-unquote white feminists. Right. And it was, it was like it was a really, you know, it was one of those moments, you know, where that sort of proverbial get, feeling the rug being swept out from under your feet because it's called all of a sudden I was never going to see the world the same way again, mm. right? I, I just wasn't because I just did not expect that something like that could happen. Mm. Um, and so I had, I was rethinking feminine them and I was like rethinking myself, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? What should have happened? And, you know, and I just remember there was a point where I was, you know, I was, I was it's just basically I was just sitting on a bus trying to, uh, contemplating it going. And then it just hit me and I was just like, oh my God, really? Like they, they think they're better than you. Mm. That's your so feminist that colleague. Yeah, yeah so that that, was it. 
That's interesting. Yeah, because when you were speaking, I was thinking of, um, so obviously white fragility was a term uh, coined by uh, Robin DiAngelo, who is in one of the earlier episodes um, I did on on whiteness. And um, she talks about this in the work uh, environment. I don't know if you've um, read yes. her book, but yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, and, and I always thought it was very interesting because once she'd pointed it out, I then started to notice it. Yeah. Um, a lot more um, and then obviously one it's a bit like a lot of things isn't it to do with feminism or anti-racism once yeah. you start to see something you then can't unsee it and it's just there um, and it's mm. it's almost like shocking that other people aren't observing it or noticing it um, I'm just wondering did it make you I mean you, you identify as a feminist presumably based on on your writings and what you've said and do, do you feel like race is the big divide yeah. within the feminist movement? Like, yeah. I mean, this is the thing where I said I, I, I would not be able to see the world the same way again. Now, I, it's not that I wasn't aware already that racism was impacting feminism as well and that, you know, I'd written about white feminism and, and the need for you know, for it to, to make more room for, for women of, of colour. Uh, what I what I was unprepared for, I guess, was the way the tactical, that's why I use the word strategy, strategic, right, in the title of, the, of that mm. piece, that there's a strategy to it and that where allies, I guess, quote-unquote, as long as we know our place, right, that there's a place for us and that we think, we being women of colour, think that we're fighting equally with with um, the, our white sort of feminist colleagues or, or sisters or whatever and um, until some sort of situation happens and they want and they want to silence us they want us to shut up about it for whatever reason then then that's when the that strategy of turning it around it's the same tactic right the turning mm. it around calling us a bully so the same thing that d'angelo and others describe in the workplace um is happening in feminist organizations and it's happening among friendship groups mm. you've, you've 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 reached a point where uh, you being women of colour uh, in this instance, so you've reached a point where uh, you're infringing, I guess, on their self-image and they're not going to really address that. They're not, they don't want to change. Uh, they want to keep their self-image and that necessitates shutting you up. Um, do, do you think this is rooted, sorry, do you, just one, do you think this is rooted in the hierarchy of human value which is inherent in my view within whiteness which is it's absolutely yeah it's so implicit that um you know the the particularly european uh, culture and i it's one i know better than north american and australian but i mean you you know those so you may be able to comment on those uh, much more than i can but the the sense that you know, having European identity, beliefs, values, history, philosophy centered in every aspect of our lives um, creates, um, I wrote in a piece a, a few years ago, actually also in The Guardian, there's a, there's a line, a very fine line between um, white is normal and white is right. And mm -hmm. it seems to me that, that that seems to underpin a lot of these interactions where people, white women in the conversation aren't necessarily reflecting, we're not reflecting enough on 
whether our subjectivity uh, in terms of the power structures we exist within are impacting on how we're able to receive information. Um, how what was the reaction to the book like? <laughs> yeah, look, um, and the piece, in fact, because I know the uh, piece. Uh, was... <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, and you know, if, uh, uh, just before I get to that, I'll say, you know, you're you're absolutely right, and that's that's what the book was for me, right? So so the article was me, um, and keep in mind. Um, that I thought I was really only going to be speaking to an Australian audience um, because it was for Guardian Australia. So um, I wasn't expecting that it was going to be picked up by the UK and US Guardians and do, do, you know, kind of of go gangbusters there. Um, And and I'm pointing that out because our conversation here is is significantly far behind, um, I think, uh, conversations on race that, that are happening in uh, the UK, uh, Europe, and and in North America, and so I knew that I would be saying something that many of them would, I think many readers may not have even come across. Whereas whereas people in North America by that point were familiar with with the concept of white tears, right? So, mm. um, and I so so that piece was about me saying, okay. This is this thing is happening. It's happened to me too many times for it to not be some kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a indicator of a more widespread problem. And so, you know, I, I put a call out on my Facebook page for brown and black women in Australia to you know, ask them if it's happened to them. I directed them to an article written by uh, Lavia Jayi, a black woman in, in America, and some tweets written by a black Canadian woman and saying, has anything similar like that happened to you here in this country, in Australia? And I got such a massive response, and that's how the article happened. That's when I, I knew, okay, this 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 is this has to do with whiteness. This has to do with white society. Mm-hmm. And then so the and so what the book was about was about going deeper and going back into history, and how did this come about? How how is it that it is so easy to position a brown woman, a black woman? as being aggressive um, and that even though she might be uh, attempting to address uh, an issue or or, or address, you know, something that had been done to her or she may even just be disagreeing or she may be, you know, asserting herself in some way. Why is it so easy to to really uh, demonise her and, and position her as an aggressor? And how is it that this is something that even women who claim to be feminists uh, will can and will lean into so that's mm. that's what I that's what I um what's what I go into into the book and I go into the you know you talk you were talking about divide and so yeah there is a divide and that divide was put there deliberately by by white colonizers so I do focus on you know the western settler colonial history and and which I think obviously then went, you know, affected the trajectory of race in, in Europe. Um, so this divide was deliberately placed there that, that, that elevated uh, white women over the colonised population but kept them subordinated to white men. And so when you have this divide that says white women are true women, you know, white middle class, able-bodied uh, cis women uh, are true women and 
every other woman has some sort of deficiency and this deficiency manifests in being, uh, you know, aggressive and violent and unintelligent and irrational, um, needs to be, you know, told what to do, is, is yeah, yeah, all these sorts of things. So uh, when, when you have that and then as soon as a, a, a brown or a black woman um, does or says anything that can be interpreted through that lens, um, then it's going it's going to be applied, uh, and so that's where all these you know, and I go into this, these these archetypes that that were used to characterize women of various races. So you know the the angry black woman, the 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 East Asian dragon lady. Uh, so um, that these these archetypes used to really keep racialized women uh, trapped um, in this kind of, you know, I call it the, the, the binary, the box where, where we're given two options, right? We can either be, we can either be the kind of the pet, the, the one who, you know, keeps things smooth and takes things with a smile and polite. And even if she's wrong, she'll forgive. But if she assert, you know, if you assert yourself too much, or you start to become a problem or you point out pro issues, you become the threat. So, you know, I call it the pet or the threat. So e either way, mm. we're not, we're just not allowed, we're not permitted um, to be, to, to have this full expression of, of being human, right? Because when we're, when we're, we're not allowed to get angry when something bad is done to us, uh, mm. there's no, there's no distinction made between, um, you know, uh, anger at injustice and just, anger uh, it's all it's all framed as being irrational and that serves a purpose served a purpose during you know colonization when when the colonized were resisting right because then the the white uh, population and uh white society was able to justify further violence right so you know in, in australia in the frontier wars when aboriginal um people uh when they did resist their colonization uh, uh, then they were massacred, and and it was claimed it's because they were being um, they were being hostile. So mm. yeah, so this is this is this is the history of that. So when mm. um, when a white woman today, that's 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 what we that's what she leans into this history of white innocence and brown and black guilt. Mm. I want to I want to pick you up on the the white victimhood yeah. and the white innocence actually because mm. obviously we've seen in recent years uh, stories of white women calling the police on black men in situations when they're mm -hmm. seemingly aware of playing on some form of white innocence and I think what's really interesting is that it's now been captured on film uh, in a way that it's on you know you can't there's no getting out of the reality that the woman in the situation knows exactly what she's doing. And I'm thinking here of, you know, the woman who gets called Barbecue Becky in mm -hmm. Oakland, America, who called the police on a black family having a barbecue or the African-American man, Christian Cooper, who was out bird watching last year and who had asked a, a white uh, female dog walker to put her dog on the lead, to which she replied, now, infamously, in fact, because the video has been watched over 20 million times, uh, she said, I'm going to call the police and tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. What is really happening in these right. situations? What lies beneath the surface of this interaction? Okay, so what, what, 
what that harks back to. So that is the right. So so the status of white women, um, you know, historically was. Uh, 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 the white damsel, right? So I go, I go, I, I discuss the, the the concept of the the white damsel in distress who needed to be uh, protected um, and segregated from, you know, the sex crazed masses, um, uh, uh, black and and brown and then brown masses, and so she, um, you know, her held up as being sort of the embodiment of virtue and innocence, and. The flip side of that is um, what I call the damsel in defense because she she then um, becomes an instrument of um, justifying uh, violence against uh, a brown and, and black people and of uh, reasserting that racial hierarchy. So that's what, um, you know, Amy Cooper is in the park is doing. So she... Mm. Is, is, you know, from, from what we can gather from when the, we don't know how exactly, you know, in the sense of we, we didn't see the beginnings of the altercation, but we do see her demanding that he does as she is telling him or else she's going to, you know, call the police and tell them that there's, you know, an African-American man. So so she's she's saying that, do as I say, or I'm going to call and they're going to come and you know what's going to happen. And they're mm. going to believe me because I'm a white woman. So what she's doing is using that sort of that, that concept of a white damsel in distress um, uh, at risk of violence and from, from a, a black man to actually defend the racial to defend her position above him because she clearly mm. thinks she clearly thinks that he should be doing what she's demanding right and she's also perpetuating she's defending she's perpetuating that system of police brutality against <laughs> black men right because she's, yeah. she's essentially saying um well, you know, the, 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 that was the unspoken is that that she said it in such a way that he knew what she was saying as well um which is you know, do as I say or else, basically. So she's just yeah. calling, just calling on the protector of the white woman to come and protect her. But it's obviously uh, a ruse, and she's um, uh, manipulating the situation to to get what she wants. So damsel in distress, damsel in defence. Um, and so that's that's what I call it in you know in, in my book. And then that's also what's kind of happening between white women and white feminists and and feminists of colour. Stakes aren't as high, obviously, as that, but it's yeah. that same dynamic, the same dynamic. Well, I mean, I suppose to bring it back to your conversation with, you know, with your white colleague about the conflict in Syria, the stakes can be very high. I mean, bombing mm. civilian areas is also extreme forms of violence, oh, right? Of course, but, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, sometimes these conversations, which to some people are theoretical, but clearly in that context was absolutely not theoretical to you, um, that, that, that there's the implied threat of violence doesn't seem maybe as real. I'm really interested in the, I guess, and I don't actually know whether this is a red herring route. I'd love to hear your views, but 
she seemed so flippant this Amy when she was speaking that you you know and we're talking about a pretty mundane request right can you put your dog back on a lead it's not exactly major stuff um and her response bearing in mind we're talking about it being last year so we're still in the height of BLM acute awareness uh, in America, unless you're living under a rock of of police brutality when it comes to the African-American community and, and the Latino community also. Um, and I'm just wondering whether you feel that that was conscious and does it matter? I I think that it can be conscious and unconscious. In her case, I think it was very much conscious. Um mm watching it again and again and seeing the way in which she's she's quite um you know she's quite brusque with him and but using bizarrely polite language like calling him sir as well as saying you know african-american rather than 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 black or or another term but so this bizarrely sort of polite language but but quite um uh you know blunt and, and and brusque um and then getting um, quote unquote hysterical, and I use that word deliberately because um, she's—it's a performance that she was putting on of mm. you know, um, and of of you have to come and help me. There's a, you know, this, this black man, yeah. So and doing it in order to maximize um, the likelihood that they well you know uh, as in theoretically in, in her mind that 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 they would come and and you know deal with him um so yeah. so that was um deliberate but also because she was like kind of warned him you know so it's like yeah you know do whatever she's was saying like turn the phone off or whatever and do that or yeah i will call there, I'll call the police and I will tell them that and that there's an African American man threatening me and my dog, right? So, so it's kind of like, haha, yeah, she's 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 basically daring him to, and and so you don't make that kind of threat un, unless you know that the person whom you're threatening is aware of the consequences of it, yeah. and that's that happens, you know, in a society, and that's kind of. That's where I guess uh, a lot of women, white women, white womanhood's power has historically lied and still lies in in um, it's not it's it's not uh, as much of the blunt and frontline power, although that's increasingly becoming the case. But what she demonstrates, it's not it's that it's that. Um, that kind of the almost like the in-between you know the black there's a black man here the white man there she's 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 the in-between and and she can use her status over black men um to get white men to do her bidding but then in the Mm. process she she she's perpetuating this um this hierarchy of white women needing to be protected and you know of white women being um inherently sort of weaker and and um at risk right mm. and, so and, and yeah 
And it it links to something actually in your book that I thought was really interesting around the idea of the protection of white women, right? Being a selling point for atrocities perpetrated by white men from lynchings to refusing asylum seekers. And that as the literal bearers of white society, white women are tasked with ideal womanhood, meaning their protection and the subsequent continuation of white supremacy are part of the same equation. You write that white women's performance of victimhood keeps white male patriarchy in place. Can you break that down for us? <laughs> yeah, interesting. I'm, I'm moving away from sort of using um, patriarch, the term patriarchy to describe white, white power structures, but okay. um, I, I won't get into that. But let's just okay. keep it because that's how it is in the book. Um, sure. is, um, so what what's happening, yeah, so what's happening there is that when – when a you know white woman is claiming to be a victim um, of a, a woman of color or a man, you know, person, any person of color, uh, and is then um, appealing either directly or indirectly for help, um, then she's reasserting that she's in some ways helpless, right? That she needs to be protected, that this this concept of 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 women of white women as being um, uh, uh, like uh, you know these these uh, well you know damsels basically so a, you know a damsel mm. is someone who do, who doesn't have full control of her life, and so. Um, which was true for a long time, actually. Uh, well, argued. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, well, you know, um, well, you know what, yes and no, because women have always been able to skirt around that, right? Mm. So uh, um, I know we don't have enough time to go into that. But it's it's more, you know, what I deal with the book is I deal with with discourse and representations for the most part. It's like what 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 is um, what's happening at a level of, of – of uh, what what does this performance mean? What does this image mean? What is this? What is what we say about people? What uh, um, so so what's what is what's happening in that is that it's 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 always going to position um, white women as as being not the final bearers, right, of, of, of power. Um, it's, it's, they're always going to need white men to be there to, you know, to enact the violence basically on their behalf, right? Mm. Uh, I'm talking, again, I'm talking in, in, in discourse here, obviously in, in practice white women have also been very violent and some yeah. white men have not been violent, right? So, so um I'm trying to remember that. I might have to get you to read to read that that paragraph out for me again. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I guess it was the idea that white women's performance of victimhood keeps white male patriarchy in place. And the reason I really was interested in kind of picking your brain on this one was because I think obviously a lot of white women, especially today, think of themselves as feminists, you know, sometimes yeah. with a capital F and sometimes not. Um, and so I'd love for you um, to kind of take us through that idea that actually white women's performance of, of victimhood, which in many ways might be a performance that isn't even perceived as kowtowing to patriarchy, um, mm. is actually sustaining it. Yeah. So it's definitely sustaining white supremacy. Um, okay. So uh, 
because a it's it's positioning um, people of color as being uh, potential inherently and and potential threats to her. So that it's it's as if we are. Um, you know, almost like sort of time bombs or, or un, you know, un, uh, uh, tamed animals that are not quite tamed and, uh, uh, you know, something can just make a snap and we're going to, you know, we're going to go for her and she needs to, she needs to be protected from us. So, so it's this, it's this performance of, um, of weakness, right? Mm. It's a performance of, um, you know, innocence as well. And it's, it's, uh, it's it's recalling all of those centuries of the incredible violence and uh, that have been visited on black men, brown men, Middle Eastern men um, that have been sort of you know accused in one way or another of of threatening or being or or attacking a, a white woman, but it's also you know the history of these. Um, these laws in Western countries that um, did criminalize, uh, you know, basically a black man or a brown man even talking to a white woman in some places, you know. So, like, you know, Papua had, when, when Papua was under the, Papua New Guinea was under the uh, rulership of Australia, you know, in the 1920s, the, the White Women's Protection Ordinance, um, did you know, it became a, a crime uh, punishable by death to even attempt uh, to rape a white woman, for a black man to, to to rape a white woman. And part of that was strictly monitoring the movements of white women, right? Of course, so, yeah. so at the same time, and because... And racial even boundaries. At, absolutely, right? So because it's, it's a reassertion of these boundaries and these hierarchies. So because even attempting to rape, uh, and Papa wasn't alone in this, Rhodesia had the same laws, uh, United States during slavery. Um, so even at, uh, attempt, so then it, it became that, you know, some men were accused of attempted rape just simply by being, you know, in the same room as a white woman. Okay, right. um, and not always by the woman herself, right? It, it just became a convenient way to deal with, as you know, as Amy Cooper was trying to do in that park. So, mm. um, as well as that, it, it it also necessitated the strict monitoring of white women's movements and freedoms. So, uh, you know, sex between. Uh, colonized man and white women was illegal, uh, but white men were free <laughs> to do, including uh, sexual abuse, which they did in horrific numbers and right. no repercussions. So, at the same time as that, white women's you know movements were being restricted supposedly for their own protection. Uh, white men were not only free to move as they willed, but they they were excused in in perpetrating um, shocking shocking violence against uh, brown and black me- women as well as men, yeah. and then projecting that you know back onto their victims by it's almost like the more that white male colonizers and settlers were abusing colonized women, 
the more they accused black and brown men of doing it. Okay, it's almost mm-hmm. like you know, and so this is why another reason I'm, I'm a, you know, a big fan of, of Professor Andrews. So, so there's a lot, there's a lot going on there in the psyche and this delusion of I'm good. White society is good. Look, see, see, look at our women. They're all they're well dressed, they're virtuous. She, she's the angel of the house. She's innocent. As long as they kept this image of her alive, this this white female archetype that really didn't exist, had very little to do with actual white women, it was a concept that was imposed on white women in the same way as all those archetypes were imposed on non-white women. As long as that, that was kept alive, then it's like any act of violence that white men committed, it was like Teflon, you know, they just brushed it off um, and passed it on. It was like if they, you know, oh, you know, in, in Native American men, they really don't respect their women. Mm. There's, you know, that so the tropes. Oh, you know, those tropes and, the you know, the black Jezebel, that's another archetype I, I discuss that, that, that they're, they're asking for it and it's because their culture doesn't respect them. And then mm. there was the same case in Australia um, with First Nations women. Um, so they were giving a, a trope of black velvet, right? And so... And so how it was justified is not only that the black women were uh, promiscuous and, and, you know, they just know it was not in their vocabulary, but the, their culture de- supposedly debased women so much that because um, if they didn't debase her, then it wouldn't be happening, right, because mm. it doesn't happen to our women. We don't let it happen because we get all violent. So, so it's this bizarre, like, combination of, violence denial of violence and and delusion of um of uh, of morality and superiority and innocence and mm. almost like the more violent that white the more violent that white men uh, became um the more that they idealize the this this ideal white woman the more um that they insisted that white whiteness was was perfect um mm. so that is you know when I it, it, it's so hard for me to sort of pick out sort of particular paragraphs in my book yeah, because I do I, a lot of it is just it's real I mean these are such they're not only like they're just they're not only so complex in that in that we're talking about layers and of generation after generation after generation like they I know that they're, you know, considered explosive, and 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 that, you know, sometimes when you just pull a small quote, if you if you you know, unless you can sort of describe what came before that, it's going to mm. seem like you're talking about, right? So, um, well, I suppose, yeah, it depends how how immersed you are in in these conversations, I guess. Um, I guess yeah, I'm, you know, I'm assuming there's, you know, there'll be some people that are, that that are not aware, but yeah, anyway, yeah. I guess that's just saying I know that I'm, I'm I go off on tangents but I'm trying I'm trying to give as much context as I yeah, can yeah no of course that's that's really helpful I mean I'm wondering off the back of that whether that means that white women and women of color can never really be part of the same feminist movement because white women will always um fall back on this support for uh, white patriarchy, which itself is a system that ultimately demeans all people of colour. Is that your conclusion or do you see a way out? I mean, uh, 
the only way out is for white women to reject that, right? So uh, the only way, yeah. So if they, re- which is not to say that uh, women of colour don't have other options, you know, um, women I talk to in my book, and um, yeah, there's there's a you know black feminist movements, Chicana feminist movements, so, yeah. So so women of colour are organising. Um, uh, you know, outside of white feminism anyway. But in the sense of, um, you know, uh, can we, can there actually be a real... uh, United. Honest, united feminist movement between white women. It necessitates white women rejecting that, right? There's, there's, There's... There's no other way because you have to turn... They have to turn away... um, from that delusion, they have to turn away from that urge to um, basically take a shortcut and, and, and into into recalibrating their self-image by um, demonising and destroying the image, um, and in many cases, the life of the woman of colour, because that's something that's not available. Um, to women of colour in our interactions with white women, uh, uh, I think it can can and maybe does happen with between women of colour, but when it comes to women of colour and white women, that's not something that's going to happen. Um, uh, so every time that they do that, so if, every time a white feminist does that to uh, a feminist of colour, then she's the one who is perpetuating that divide because she's falling back into that status of of. Of, of default innocence, default goodness, default mm. victimhood, default victimhood. Um, and and I so, guess not unpicking maybe the archetype, would you say? Is that, would you say unpicking the archetype of the white woman is maybe an area that white feminists haven't spent enough time oh, yeah. like, on? Uh, absolutely. And so that's, you know, I spend a, a quite a significant um, amount of time in the in the early chapters of the book unpicking you know the archetype of the white damsel as well as the archetypes that were imposed on uh, on women of color um, and at the end um, in the conclusion I, I, I have a list of many many sort of questions that I, I pose to white feminists and white women in general um, that they need to address before they can um, claim to be um, True, you know, truly part of the movement. You know, Do you part, want to share some of, of them with us? Sort of sisterhood. Um, okay. Uh, it's in the, it's, Put, putting you right on the spot there, but no. no, no this is yeah. fine. This is good. It's fine. It's a, it's it's uh, it's good. Um, I just you know I, I'm aware of not of not of dead airtime. So no, no, fine. <laughs> we we, we want to hear so, them. These are these are the important questions. Right. I mean, obviously, a lot of them are. Um, going to um, I'm addressing issues that I've brought up in mm-hmm. the book um, so I suppose it's we're so used to hearing uh, about the feminist movement and I feel the more that you spend time within feminist circles you almost sometimes feel that there are multiple forms of feminism and I often ask myself whether those uh, often intersecting uh, forms of f- feminism can actually form 
a real united umbrella. And I ask that specifically when we talk about feminism that's including, uh, I guess, women of color, but also what we might call um, sort of the uh, alternative uh, non-Western perspectives on feminism, which are often rooted in anti-capitalism and almost premise the liberation of all peoples on unpicking the sort of pyramid of capitalism, which is not just a, an economic pyramid, but one that has been sustained ideologically by the cover of white supremacy. Um, and so I'm, I'm always sort of looking to try and understand whether A, there can be a united movement and B, I guess, whether that whether feminism um, or even anti-racism can ever achieve its goals within a capitalist framework. But that's maybe a big question no, when I've just asked you to read. Is, <laughs> <laughs> no, that is... Um, no, you, you, you bring up vital points because feminism in non-Western countries has always been multifaceted in that way. Mm. So, you know, feminism... You know, early 20th century feminism in, in Egypt, uh, anti-imperialism was fundamental to it. And, and in fact, you know, Egyptian feminists like Huda Sharawi uh, stopped working with European feminists when when the, 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 the European counterparts refused to take a stand on what mm. was happening in Palestine, right? When, that, when they didn't take a, a stand on the Balfour Declaration, that was essentially going to pave the way for um, the, coloni the complete colonization of Palestine, right. um, they refused, they stopped working and they, they, they um, strengthened their ties with African feminists. Mm. Um, you know, feminism, 20th century feminism in, in Latin America was very much um, led um, or, or at least highly involved working class women. Um, so it's it's always been, um, you know, outside of that middle class white framework, it's always had to be multi multifaceted because we're we've never only um, we've never only had to deal um, with gender as an oppression. Right, which is the case for white feminists in, i.e., middle class um, white women who have led liberal feminism in the West. Right, so yeah. that's why it, it reflects their worldview, and it reflects their um, their aims and their goals, which is very much about individual uh, empowerment. Right. Um, so individual women in more positions of power, and mm -hmm. uh, so. Uh, I, an equal share of an unequally derived cake, maybe. Well, that's it. It's it's about, uh, and that's sort of the history that I, I discuss, is that um, they're, they've always leveraged for better status. And this has always come, always come at the expense of women of mm. colour and people of colour. So, right. You know, in in Australia, white women played a very big role, and, and it was the same in in America and Canada as well, uh, in North, uh, as in the United States of America and Canada, in removing Indigenous children from their parents, um, their families, on the basis that as white women they were better placed to care for them. White women make better, you know. So they did that. Um, a 
they were perpetuating white supremacy, right, and colonialism, but B, they were also agitating against restrictions placed on white women working outside the home. So they were they they be they were able to be you know uh, out working outside the home and working in the service of empire. Mm. So um, I, I've I've found those questions. Yes, so, please. The, <laughs> the questions to, to, to white feminists yeah. and white readers. Tell us. So uh, look, I, I discuss a little bit about how white women actually have gained quite a, a number of powerful positions in the past few um, U.S. administrations, right? So yeah, she, you know, they they missed they they the Hillary, you know, obviously I, I wrote this before the the, the last uh, election. Yeah. So. Um, the questions start, uh, are we to say that white women are rising in these ranks at a time when the United States just happens to be involved in several conflicts in the Middle East, or is it more likely that white women are once again leveraging imperialism for their own advancement and calling it equality? Mm. What does it mean for the rest of us that white women can quietly control almost all of the weapons belonging to the world's most powerful country, this was under Trump, right. and still claim and still claim to be oppressed in the same way as other women. Can white women and women of colour find common ground when the conditions that each live under are so fundamentally different? What long-term benefits can we hope for from Me Too when white women have not yet accounted for the history of their tears being used to condemn innocent men of colour? How do we move on from centuries of white women weaponizing their tears against us to a future where we can believe all women? And finally, can white women understand and identify with us when they don't know what it means to be crushed by white supremacy? These are not rhetorical questions, and my challenge to white women is that they mm. start answering them. So mm. my book came out in October, September 2019 in Australia, and I'm still waiting for an Australian white feminist to answer even one of these mm, interesting uh, all my colleagues by the way it's not like they don't know who I am and they don't know about my book so there's this deliberate refusal to even acknowledge it um oh, which in its, wow. own, in its own way it's an answer and I knew that so yeah. I was kind of you know I guess I was setting my own little kind of um well, no. yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. But it's also maybe one of those where, you know, in, in, in a book that I think a lot of uh, white people, white women who haven't uh, thought about some of these issues, um, you know, we know this from, from the other writers you've talked about, kind of the reactions to kind of raising the realities of um, women of colour's experiences that, that, that the initial reaction is often, you know, rejection, anger, fear, um, and that maybe there, there needs to be a, a, a digestion of the issues. Um, but I, I really hope someone will take you up. And if, if they don't, I mean, um, I would love to <laughs> in another, yeah, in another situation. I, I, I would, you know, because I, I mean, you know, the, the part of writing, like doing this kind of work, right, it, it's, um, it's often framed as being um, kind of confrontational towards white people mm. and white women in particular. Uh, but if there's one thing I, I can 
try to impart is that there's always a generosity involved in writing something like this, whether white people acknowledge that or not. This is not not a condemnation. It's not a you're beyond hope. It's not a, you know, know, I'm breaking up with white women forever. This is a kind of, listen, like if, if, there's any hope for us, uh, you yeah. uh, uh, you have to answer these, you know, you have to look at what's going on because ultimately whiteness is going to destroy all of us and that's, that's you know, that's clear because whiteness is just so intrinsically tied to capitalism. Mm. It's intrinsically tied to conflict, to domination, to war, all of that. So mm. when you well, perpetuate whiteness in any context, you're, you're going to be perpetuating that sort of that sort of domination so yeah mm, well on that note I will hit you with our quick fire round question one of which is <laughs> what is your definition of whiteness okay so you know I, I, I'll start off by saying it is an imperfect term because racism is and our understanding of it is always in a state of flux um so uh, why I say whiteness is more than skin colour. Uh, it's a it's a preferencing of the racial, cultural, religious uh, identities that most resemble the typical characteristics associated with the you know the white Western Europeans who initially created it. So it's a it's a social, political, legal, economic system built on the presumption that white people are culturally, biologically and intellectually superior, and as a result are entitled to dominate everybody else. Wow, that was very thorough, thank you. Um, (laughs) Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view, and is the universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? Like that's, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I, that's that's an almost impossible question for me to answer because there's always you don't you don't know what's gonna you know what 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 a spanner can be thrown into the works. In terms of a is there a post-racial world? Uh, may you know we can maybe have a world that isn't uh, so. Um, What's so you know dependent um, on assigning uh, particular uh, values and particular status to people based on their race? Uh, that's something that that is yeah. I I I don't know. I, I always I work with the um, the mindset of uh, trying not to think too much about the outcome and just finding finding value in the work now in itself right because I think Mm. that's where a lot of the value is um I also know that you know what I consider what I do is it's it's an act of witnessing right it's about it's about recording it's about objecting um and it's um yeah it's it's like this is how I see things this is how things are this is this is what I'm objecting to and I don't know what comes mm. next but all I know is that we have to do something to make it better than what was and what is mm. and if you were going to give one golden rule one golden piece of advice to white feminists in the movement something they should be cautious about what would be your one golden rule or is there one 
There really isn't one because I don't know. I don't know what I'm dealing with, with, with you know, with white, with white women, whether I'm dealing with uh, ones who are genuine or ones who are not, right? So um, mm. I, what I would say is that um, there has to be some kind of change in behaviour, not just in, yeah, I'm going to read more books by, by women of colour and I'm going to listen more and I'll march and I'll, you know, uh, do all that sort of, quote unquote allyship um I would say why you know keep an eye out for why is it that uh, even after all these years of allyship and and you know intersectional feminism uh, quote unquote how is it that white women are still leading the the movement in the west how is it that we can still we can still have such a focus on you know individual empowerment and getting one woman into a position of power and not so much emphasis on uh, improving, you know, the working conditions and wages of all women. It's the mm. proof is kind of, you know, in that sense. It's it's really, you know, God, I'm dropping cliches all over the place, but that proof is in the pudding kind of a thing. Uh, mm. The fact that we're even still having this conversation indicates that white women, uh, white feminists uh, have not been... Um, sort of enacting the values that they, they say they have um, because they do have positions of, of power, that mm. more positions of power. And, and so, yeah, the, the fact that white feminism is even still a thing, that's, that's, that's it. So I guess I would say, you know, like, you know, can, can we just move away from this sort of focus on treating feminism as this sort of, uh, individual um, sort of uh, this is all about my choice and my you know my rights and, and about how how is it how is it that we can work towards improving things for as many women and as many you know all people as possible. Mm. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ruby. That was uh, really, really uh, interesting talking to you today. Um, I know that there's going to be a lot of people after this who want to keep up with your work and find out more about <laughs> you. Um, is there a place that people can turn to? What's the best place to people for people to head to if they want to uh, read more of your work, hear more of your perspectives? Is there a website? Um, so no, my only, my only sort of web presence is my Instagram page, um, which is fairly quiet, but, um, you can find me there. Um, I know I should have a website. I'm, I'm notoriously kind of uh, <laughs> not comfortable in the public eye, but, but yeah, so, um, yeah, you can find me on, um, Instagram, Instagram. And, and then I can sort of direct if people want to, you know, um, see find links there but um yeah great and um I gather you have almost finished your PhD oh yeah almost if I'm almost yeah and I've got about a year and a bit to go because I did have to take some time off because of this book um yeah. so you know I, so I more guess soon then I've done more yeah I'm, I've done more than I need to but you know <laughs> it's it's not as uh, click hut with with uh, you know uh, PhDs can still be hitting some snags but yeah it's it's been kind of difficult trying to sort of have these two things going on at once a book and I the bet. PhD yeah um, such different I'm, exercises 
they are. And so yeah. what I've found is that, you know, my, my supervisor's always telling me my writing is too journalistic and my editor was always telling me that my writing was too academic. So I'm oh, just I'm like... Very, yeah. I'm very familiar with that critique. So, it's like, oh, um, awesome. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck with um, the finishing of the PhD and, and I hope to hear many more uh, books coming out in the future. Uh, Ruby Hamad, thank you so much for your time. Um, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations about whiteness.